Welcome to the InfoQ Culture Podcast. This is Shane Hasty. I'm the lead editor of Culture and Methods on InfoQ.com. And I'm sitting down with Amber Case, a cyborg anthropologist. Amber, you just gave a really interesting opening keynote here at QCon 2016 in San Francisco. Can you give us a, a very, very quick overview of the premise of your talk from this morning? Sure. I was giving a quick history and future of virtual reality and augmented reality. And what I wanted to do is show how you can create interesting applications uh, with pre-made code, but also the idea that you should be playing with these systems and that the HTC Vive is probably the best out there that you can use and how when you get into these systems, you can be very interactive and very free and that you shouldn't be building them based on what you've seen on laptops and and mobile devices. And then I went through a little bit of a history of why do we don't have augmented reality yet, which is why, um, the reasons why is you need battery life for your pack, you need to have a front sensing camera for your hands, which may or may not work when the sun is bright or it's very dark outside. You have to worry about bandwidth issues and connecting people together and connecting you to a real-time data set. Then you have to do image analysis in the world, plus you have um, the issues of, of weight and walking around with that thing on your eyes and having a, a projected screen in front of you at all times. So starting something small in your living room uh, or in a simple space like VR, you can control the environment, you can control the sound, you can control the connectivity and it's wired. And that's where you can kind of create these new experiences and objects and connectivity. And then once those get stable enough, then you can start to untether, just like we saw with the mobile phone coming from the landline telephone all the way to the, the device that we have today. So we have to start somewhere, we have to work with social norms, we have to expand slowly, and we can't just jump industries. And I think there was so much promise and excitement about AR that we forgot our order of operations. We need to do virtual reality first, then we need to do augmented reality. So the talk was about that and about um, just showing people what you could do with VR. So I had some videos of Cosmic Trip, which is a real-time strategy game and it has teleportation, uh, but then you can have all these little panels and you can kill creatures with these frisbee light disc devices um, or something that looks more like a port of an 8-bit game over to 3D virtual reality, um, which is the, the, spice, it's the, spice, the Space Pirates game. Um, or some of, some of the other games where it's just like a leaf blower simulator. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, of course, a lot of it will be pushed forward by games, and I'm really excited about that to see people playing, because for a long time it was such a brittle, serious industry that we couldn't really innovate anywhere. Um, so that, that was what the talk was about. Cool. Thank you very much. And backing up just a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you want. Sure. Uh, my name's Amber Case. I'm Case Organic on Twitter. Um, I gave a, a TED Talk back in 2010 on cyborgs, that we're all cyborgs, and that when you're interacting with a, with a piece of technology, you, know, you might be a low-tech cyborg, but you know, you're part human, part machine, even if it's not embedded into you. And that our tools, for the most part, have been physical, except... Uh, you know, physical extensions of ourselves, except for writing, handwriting, and, and writing on cave walls. Now that's an extension of your mental self. And as we grow our devices, they, they retreat in, in size, but increase in complexity. How do we handle the demands on our attention um, when we have so many devices trying to capture it? So I'm really interested in attention and depression and sleeplessness and 
weird effects and also the amplifications of, of humanity that we can have through technology. Because it's not that technology is bad or good, it's how we act on top of it. Um, I'm also a, just starting in September, I, I became a fellow at Harvard Berkman Klein Center of Internet and Society, where I'm researching the impact of technology on humanity. And at the same time, I'm also a fellow at the MIT Media Lab Center for Civic Media. So I'm, I'm helping to bring new ways to build static websites and, and fun ways to learn how to code again on the web. Because again, we've gotten into a brittle culture where most people are not learning how to program and have fun when they learn at an early age. They are learning to use social media, which gives you a templated self with 140 characters and a little box to put your feelings in, but you're not creating your own architecture and understanding how to support that. One of the ways to do that is static websites. Um, I just moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm doing all these things, and it's really fun to be there. You have recently written a book on calm technology. Do tell. Sure. So when I was writing my thesis in college on cell phones, uh, the smartphone, the, the, well, the, the iPhone had just kind of come out. So I was flying around to San Francisco and watching all these people on their phones, you know, in, in the line for the BART station and, and all these kind of accidental soliloquies while people talked out of turn uh, or putting their dog on pause while they were walking it because they could, had to send a text message and kind of determined that these are weird devices. You know, they kind of cry and you have to pick them up and soothe them back to sleep. They get hungry, you have to plug them in at night. And I was looking for the next generation the interface and I kind of stumbled upon some work from Mark Weiser, Rich Gold, and John Seeley Brown at Xerox Park, which we know as the place that gave us the modern graphic user interface, Ethernet, many other innovations. And if you look at some of these innovations, you wonder how many were actually missed. If, if you go back and you look at these papers that have been written, you can save yourself millions of dollars by looking at something that's done outside of that time in a kind of simulated environment. At Xerox Park, they had what Mark Weiser called pads, tabs, and boards. We have the same thing today. We have the big board with a projected display. We have the pads and the tablets. We have these little things in our hands. And what Mark Weiser said is that once we have all these devices, the scarce technology in the 21st century won't be our technology. It will be our attention. How we build devices to handle that attention, how we give information without taking people out of a task, how we create devices to let people be human instead of being constantly interrupted and distracted, that will make or break our use of technology in, in the coming era. And he wrote a number of great papers. One was called The Coming Age of Calm Technology, in which we had many people to one mainframe computer, and now we have many devices to one person. And he also wrote a paper which is fantastic called The World is Not a Desktop, we shouldn't be making interactions with our technology as if we were sitting in front of a desktop computer with full connectivity, a wired connection, a two-year stable piece of software written in some language that people understand that doesn't need an update and that also commands all of our attention. We already know that we can't use a phone while we drive because it's a conflict from our primary attention source, which needs to be on the road. If you try to download some app in the grocery checkout line to use a coupon, you know, what, what does that mean? Um, and it also talked about our bandwidth concerns. We have an issue where when we talked about creating new things in the past, like electricity, there was this electrification initiative. Everything needs electricity from the smallest farm to the largest city. Large companies made electricity in the large cities, and there were all these coalitions to independently make uh, electricity for the smaller cities and the towns. Do not have the same with our connectivity. We have 
applications that are written really, really large that take forever to download over cellular connection. We have Pokemon Go becoming a really big issue um, in terms of AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile networks where they can't handle the data. Too many people are opening connections at the same time. And the fact is not that many people were really playing that game on the whole. That it screwed with the network is, is upsetting. And then you also have the threat of Internet of Things connected devices, which are quite insecure, which, of course, when, when we saw the 150,000 compromised devices attacking, uh, attacking the web, they said, the web is down, the Internet is down, half of the Internet's down. Well, no, they really attacked DNS in the middle, which meant you could still use the web as long as you knew the IP address of the site you wanted to go to. Um, so I think that attack, I mean, it didn't really hurt anything or anybody, uh, but I think it was kind of a prank of, hey, wake up, put a password on your freaking system. You know, if it's on the same network, all you have to do is get into that system and we can get into your web network and that means we can get into everything else. So there's a lot of these things coming up that will increase in issues um, like uh, connected pacemakers, uh, connected insulin pumps, anything with a connection can be hacked. Um, the question is when it is hacked, because it will be, or it does fail, does it go back to a basic reasonable um, method? Like there was PetNet, which was this silly connected pet feeder system. So people were setting up their dogs and cats with an automatic pet feeder with a kind of Skype type system so you could see your cat and dog and talk to them over the web. And what they found is that in the terms of service, PetNet had no liability if your cats died because of their lack of service. And so what happened is the servers went down because they're in the cloud. And instead of um, passing that update that they, they had in the queue that said, if the servers fail, we will continue to, to update uh, your, your normal feeding process because you can do that offline. You don't need to be connected to the net. They didn't have that. And so all these people kind of had Schrodinger's cats. They didn't know whether the cat was alive or not until they opened the door. And they had to make their own backup systems. So there's this kind of thing where we don't really have a lot of consumer protection. We still have these fantasies that at some point in the future, always about 10 to 20 years out, everything will be solved by technology. We want to automate everything, yet there are many things we don't want to automate. Uh, we don't want to automate family time, friend time. We don't want to automate experiences. We don't want to automate traveling the world, right? But we want to automate the things that are really boring. And the issue with automation is the more you automate, the more you can get stuck in a system and have a bad experience. And so companies who have automated a lot, say Bank Simple, which is a really nice application you can use for your phone to get all your financial information, they have an incredible customer support team um, because they know that when you automate, you need to have support. I've been stuck between borders before because the QR code on my plane ticket would not scan in the machine because it was slightly bent. I had to find the security camera, wave my arms around and wait for a real human to come out, try to scan it and bypass the system. If you don't have somebody there, you're going to have a pretty dystopian future. Um, we already had sci-fi about this. Brazil, for instance, where you have a bug and there's no human to check it out. The person gets killed before, uh, as, as a result. So um, the whole idea behind Calm Technology is, is not, as Mark Weiser would say, smarter technology. It's about smarter humans. How can the technology live with us, be there when it's needed, not when it isn't, call to us from another location so that we don't need to watch it all the time, like a tea kettle is a very good example, give us ambient information about our environment, say a light that just shines the color that the weather's going to be instead of having to look at a giant panel. 
um, doesn't speak in an English language, so we don't need to translate it into 98 languages, like the Roomba. It goes da-da-da-da when it's done and da-da when it's stuck. Um, or make sure that everything is the least amount of technology is the right amount of technology. Um, try to take things away until there's nothing left to take away, right? The whole um, thing behind design. And try to use the least amount of people's attention. Um, and of course, respect social norms. Um, as I was talking about in my talk, Google Glass failed because we didn't have anything leading up to it, didn't respect social norms, and so it failed. So there are some principles that I've created through that book that I wrote on Calm Technology, which is how to make sure you can make a product that doesn't annoy everybody and doesn't initially fail after all of your, all of your funding and uh, lack of research because you're in a rush to get it out there. So, um, so that's what that book is about. I've been on book tour with it for a long time now. Given that we are in talking in the uh, InfoQ Culture podcast, what are the implications of this? You've touched on some of it, but the, the cultural impact of these, these types of changes. Yeah. Um, when I was first working on my thesis, I noticed that instead of people just holding phones up to their heads, if you think about where the landline telephone is, um, it's, well, not that many people have it anymore, but you sit in a room, your consciousness kind of expands to that room, you're in a private spot, and the receiver itself is shaped so you can lean it against your shoulder, between your shoulder and your head, and you can be on it for two and a half hours. Or you have a headset. Uh, when you look at a cell phone, like a, a smartphone, there's no receiver to hang your head on. And so you have angry expressions and, and people who aren't wanting to talk on the phone as much anymore. Right? You want to have simultaneous text conversations. It's for poking at. It's not for listening to or speaking into. And so you have a completely different reaction because not only do you not have that private room, you're on the open. Of course, you're not going to want to speak on the phone. Now it's, now it's voice pollution. Um, it's like having a peeing section in a swimming pool. Like you, just, you can't do that. Audio noise takes up more than one person. If you're sitting as one person on the bus, you're taking up the space of five or six people. That's very rude. Um, and of course, your brain is in kind of another dimension when you're doing it because you're talking to somebody else. So we look at that, you know, that cultural aspect is a really big deal. Suddenly we have all this technology in our pockets. We're used to it. Uh, we've created social norms, but that's a ridiculous thing. If, if somebody gets into a car accident, you can film it. How many films are we seeing now on YouTube from first person examples of wars and battles and death, you know, all of these things you can film or cute puppies, which I prefer. But you, you can kind of see these, these trends start to happen. You also see that with a device that is really about browsing instead of creating, you have people staying on it really late at night. It's now closer to you than before. You could stay on the computer really late at night, but eventually, you know, you might fall asleep in your chair. You can fall asleep to Netflix on your phone and, and do all those things on your phone. And people are going to sleep with their phones and they're waking up with their phones. Now sometimes the phones are getting stuck between people's relationships because the relationship is mediated um, with the phone, by the phone, uh, with the phone around. Selfies, posting pictures on Facebook, planning things out. You see couples in bed with each other just both on the phone, right? And it's not that the phone is bad, but there's this kind of addiction to the content on that and how the content makes money is by advertising right now. And so there's an incentive to continue kind of your sentence, as, as it were, with no punctuation uh, for 20, 30 minutes until you've forgotten where you are. Uh, so there have been some impacts on, of technology on relationships. On the other hand, technology has brought so many people together by getting people who are 
but in different geographies to connect with each other that would otherwise not normally be able to connect. Lots of people that are different than the norm. And it also gives you a way, you know, through subreddits and things like that to be part of communities that you support. So there are just as many bad things as good things. I think one of the issues that we'll see in the future though is that good interfaces will be reserved for those who can pay a lot for them and that really bad interfaces will be what you get if you can't pay a lot. So there'll be a kind of a social class divide on your interfaces. Um, what I'd like to see is long-term technology. You have a native culture that has a ceramic bowl that's been in the family for 400 years. That's a great interface, right? Uh, it has history. The fact that we have to change and switch out our phones every six months to a year to two years because they can't run the latest apps is a failure of everybody. It's a failure that, wow, we keep making more powerful apps, but they, they still feel the same. They still get slow because there's no limits on how large of an application you make. I mean, I'm really a fan of these, these things like 10K and 5K apart where you try to make an entire piece of software in 5 or 10K or the demo scene where you're making an entire animation in 5K. Uh, we had so many innovative things in, in computing systems and in video games when we had limits to what we could do. We had tiling, we had all these amazing technologies that were created and sprites because we didn't have the space. And now that we have seemingly infinite space and infinite bandwidth, which is a complete lie, we keep making and supporting these systems that take up so much space. And we say things like, well, Craigslist is really ugly you know what, Craigslist works on any computer in any country on any crappy old machine because it doesn't even have CSS, it's just HTML links now and maybe a little bit of, of formatting. So I think one of the biggest things is that you have technology that's just a wreck and, um, and we will get hit by it because complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity and then having it serve from something that you don't even own in the cloud is going to have us run into a lot of pain in the future. How do we prevent that? And we hear at QCon, it's the, the conference for technologists. Two ways to prevent something like this. The one way is to be clever about it and to code like John Carmack or Steve Wozniak, which is use the least amount of code, be incredibly clever, uh, remove systems and carve it like a sculpture be really lean and be thinking, you know, like Waz, oh, well, if we put one or two more chips on the board, we'll get color after thinking about it for two weeks. Um, that's that's the cleverness, um, which a lot of big, fast companies don't have time for. They don't have time for somebody being silly and clever. Um, yet you look at Xerox Park, you look at Bell Labs, you look at some of these big research industries, bunches of weird people like anthropologists and artists people who know calligraphy, like Steve Jobs, getting inspired to do something because it's from a different industry, because they're unique. Um, we don't have enough weirdness, we're gonna get in trouble. Um, have, you know, having uh, lots of security experts get rewarded for messing with your software. And when you get a note from them that says, hey, you have a vulnerability saying, thank you so much. Thank you for telling us instead of publishing it, we will take care of it. Maybe we can hire you to help us, right? So that's one. The other way that things usually happen, and this, this is what will happen, is Titanic effects. Uh, people forget that Titanic was one of the, I think it was the first ship to actually use SOS, because that had just come out. And radio um, was being deployed on all the ships. And then those containers, <laughs> because we're using containers now, we can think about Titanic. Um, the Titanic sinking 
and all those people dying caused regulations to be made in the radio industry, prioritization of emergency broadcast signals because there was no priority signal. So anytime the Titanic said, oh no, we're in trouble, it just got written over by somebody else who's like, oh, I want to broadcast too, because it was new. And the, the, the redundancy in those fail safes on those containers and, and the screws that were used and things like that. Um, you can look at the same thing with, with uh, Advil. I think it was Advil where they had regular caps. Someone came in and poisoned uh, a bunch of the supply and then they had childproof caps after that. And so oftentimes, if you look at Venkatesh Rao's book on tempo, oftentimes a faster tempo, the tempo of emergency forces people to act and improve things and have standards and have consumer protection in a way that wasn't done before. I highly suspect it will be a horrible tragedy uh, that will cause us to rethink these things and, and actually protect people. I don't like that idea at all, um, but I think we've seen enough warnings right now in benign situations to show the damage that can be done from simple DDoS attacks from just a volume of unsecured devices that if somebody wanted to, or some group got frustrated and said, hey, industry, you didn't take this seriously, they could do another attack. And that's usually what people do. They're like, hey, okay, we give you a nice softball. First, we warned you in an email. Here's a nice softball. And eventually some other group is like, okay, we're sick of this. <laughs> like, so I'm worried that that will happen. Um, but right now we are kind of in a boom and everybody's just busy and we're trying to get our products out. We have code debt, we have um, unstable things, we have tons of code reuse, uh, we have tons of backdoors. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a big mess. And so when you're in a boom time where you don't have that time to be really clever because um, you're pushing the product out, that's when the errors start to happen. Um, and yeah, it's just an inevitability. And first off, I don't think everybody needs connected devices. I don't need my fridge to tell me when the bananas are bad. The banana peel tells me when it's bad by changing color. I don't need my fridge to pick up new milk for me. I can go and get that done myself, right? Of course, I'm gonna go to the store and buy milk and eggs. That's what you do when you go to the store. I don't need some app to remind me. I don't need a smart stove that I can turn off and on. Crock pots, smart crock pots. You set a crock pot and let it on for eight hours and you come back home. And people were managing to make plenty of nice food um, before all this, and you really shouldn't have to be a system administrator to live in your own home. I do have one thing that I like at my house. I, I have an Airbnb that I rent out because um, I'm on the road a lot, and it has an automatic lock. It's a Schlage lock, which is a company that's not going to go to, out of business. It's been making locks. It's not going to be a startup that just fails, and then I don't have access to my lock. Um, it has a physical key code, and I have a little script that changes it to the last four digits of the person's phone number who's renting it out. And if that doesn't work, there's a backup code. And so somebody will come in and they will know the passcode and it's great. Uh, you see all these new door locks, which are use your phone to unlock your door. Who's come home from a bar at two in the morning and had their phone fully charged? Not, you know, not the average person. And suddenly you can't get into your house. These are horrible things and I don't like them and the edge cases will destroy us. And I think the person who really got me turned on to this was I was, I was giving this talk at Isis Kais University in South Korea, and Don Norman was one of the invited uh, professors there. And he kind of interrupted my talk right in the middle. And he was just like, 
okay, you've got these geofences, and, and when you put your car in the driveway and your phone is in, within the geofence, it'll turn the lights on in your house. And I said, yeah, look at all these cool things you can do with geofencing and, and GPS and mobile phones and triggering things. And he's like, that's great, but what if you had like a surprise party? And, uh, and then all the lights went on and you saw that all these people were there. He just gave me like some really mundane use case uh, issues. I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, you know what, you're right. Thanks for thinking about all these edges because often you get really excited about the tech and all the positive sides. And unlike science fiction writers who think about all the things that could go wrong, you know, if you have a Bruce Sterling show up and tell you everything that can be destroyed, you'll probably end up with a really secure system because it's thinking through you know, the chess or the poker scenarios that are really going to hurt people in the future. And I guess I'm thinking a lot more about this now because it's no longer, ooh, I have a bunch of wearable computers that are a toy. It's most of these things are from companies that no longer exist, failed Kickstarter campaigns, and I don't charge any more of them. What I use, I use my TI-83 plus graphing calculator. It's the same price as it's always been. It runs on AA batteries, and it has an LCD display or one of those little old crappy displays. That's great. If, if you're going to have tech that works with your life, it should have a year-long battery life, the simplest display, and actually get something done that's useful to you. Otherwise, why the hell do you have the technology? It's, it just gets in the way, and it's really fun for a little while, but it's literally toys. Um, so long rant over. So what does a cyborg anthropologist do? So cyborg anthropology is a subsection of the anthropology of science. Instead of just looking at humans and tools, it looks at humans and tools in this kind of symbiotic actor network. Um, you can look at humans and a system of science data. So my, my cyborg anthropology professor is one of the people that created the field, and she was one of two anthropologists hired to be on the Human Genome Project. Uh, so she actually got to go around and not just look at, she wasn't really researching what they were doing with the genomes. She was researching the network of information that ran through the scientists and the hierarchy of the scientists within that system and how that made or broke different discoveries, and how that sped up or, or slowed down the discoveries. She is now researching um, uh, natural food growing methods. There's, there's all these methods that are, have been sustainable in Italy for like 3,000 years for growing grapes doing olive oil um, and researching that because um, because it, it's, it's grabbing all of this old technology from a group of people and preserving those those methods and of course that's why you may like biodynamic wine it ends up being the best wine because because you're you know what are you doing burying you know fish fish parts into the soil or, or you know growing this weird kind of corn um, and that's also uh, an extension of cyborg anthropology. If you think about like when somebody gives birth, they have a scan that shows them the inside of their stomach and they're in a completely cyborg facility like a hospital that is um, uh, being with them while they're born. There aren't many people that are born naturally anymore that aren't born in a cyborg assemblage. <laughs> I mean, the humans are all cyborgs because they attach external components to themselves to adapt to new spaces. That's the definition of cyborg from a 1960 paper on space travel, and that's what it still is today. You know, what, what are we doing as cyborgs? Well, we have these phones attached to our bodies and we pick them up, um, and we hang out with them, and they're symbiotic creatures. They're non-human allies, as Donna Haraway would call them. Um, but the whole idea of, of cyborg anthropology is just a series of anthropological tools to look at how people are changing because of this technology that they're using. 
And usually a traditional anthropologist will go to another country and say, hmm, how fascinating these people are and their tool use and check out these, these kinship relations. And then they'll go to the country that they're from, let's say England, and they'll say, ah, I am an anthropological other and I'm going to write about these people. Um, and that's great, but we are now a field site as well. Um, and the more normal and embedded these devices get into our lives, the less we notice them because we're all getting caught up in them as well. Um, a good book to read on this is Present Shock by Douglas Rushkoff. It's a sequel to Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which is a, a fun read because it comes into terms like digiphrenia, where you're kind of schizophrenically in all these different time zones. I call it simultaneous time, where you keep getting interrupted from people's lives. And where is that, I guess the moral of the story is, where is that moment of reflection that we used to have? Where is that boredom? Where is that writing in your journal, sitting there watching a sunset? These are moments that we have less and less of. Um, starting, you know, when, when we had radio and then television and then phones and internet, we would come home from work, come home from the field, and we would play banjo, we would play guitar, we would play the piano. You would make your entertainment after dark. You would make your own food, you'd make your entertainment, you'd make your own clothes, you'd make your own house. Now we rent that. We kind of get our new clothes from a store. Um, we, we rent our house. Way less people are buying because it doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of student debt. And you have just listening. You're listening to, originally, listening to the radio instead of making your own stuff. People were lamenting the death of everybody needs to know an instrument. Everybody knew an instrument. Everybody knew how to sing. Everybody knew something that they could contribute. To, to hanging out, drinking beer. And then now you have, well, let's watch Netflix or let's play this game. And you have people waiting in these kind of non-places on, on trains during these super commutes playing these games, which is why self-driving cars will be so great um, for advertising revenue. <laughs> because the more you have somebody on a road being able to use their phone in a non-dangerous way, 30, 40% more ad revenue. Um, so this, this switch from creating to consuming um, actually ends up hollowing out a lot of people and making them quite depressed. There's something very pleasant about being able to make something with your own hands, um, being able to accomplish something you know, over the period of two months. We often see the finished product and the steps to do it in this compressed way on the, on the web, and it can discourage us from doing something. It can encourage us for, for, for to do something. But on social media like Facebook, you're often watching somebody's feed when you're in a period of time like 3 p.m. on a Tuesday where you're exhausted and you just want some easy click entertainment when you should really be getting a nap. So you're kind of channel flipping on this thing and you're seeing all these people have their amazing experiences and you remember that when they're posting those experiences, they're at these high moments. Yeah. So that contrast of you watching your friends in these high moments while you're personally in a low moment can cause feelings of depression, uh, feelings of left out anxiety um, and feelings of jealousy. So I tend not to, to look at Facebook um, in terms of the experiences side because I am looking at Facebook when I'm in a low energy period of time. I don't have time to check it when I'm on a high energy period of time. Um, Twitter, you're known a little bit more for your text instead of your, your images, so it's a little bit better. Um, but there's, there's all these, uh, I guess, inequalities uh, in terms of experience where you're in one state and somebody else is in another state, and that can cause depression. Another issue is the, the, the blue light before you go to sleep um, from your phone inhibits melatonin production, and melatonin is the, the natural chemical that's released in your brain to get you to go to sleep. 
So you can take melatonin, or that's why they say, don't use your devices an hour before sleep. And most people can't do that. Most people fall asleep with them. And the issue is that when you go to sleep, you kind of have mental defragmentation, you have memory compression, you have weird dreams where everything's like mushed together. And then you have a new clean operating system in the morning with fresh RAM. But if you don't have enough sleep cycles, how do you defragment your system well enough? How do you get that sleep? You'll be more likely the next day to cyberloaf. Um, or you see people getting on the web and they don't do anything for five hours. Uh, and so I've learned to just step away from the computer, which is very hard for me, and do a bunch of other stuff, write in a notebook. And then when I get back to the computer, I have a very specific goal. I have an app called Self-Control that doesn't allow me to use certain, uh, go to certain sites. And that really helps. Um, because if I'm stuck, instead of switching to a silly site like Reddit or Hacker News, I'll just sit there and say, okay, I have to figure this out. Or walk away from the computer, go get a drink of water, come back. Amber, thank you so much. This has really been fascinating. How do people follow you or, or get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, so, at Case Organic is my Twitter handle. Case at CaseOrganic.com is my email. If you want to see a very short, very highly updated blog, notes.caseorganic.com is where you can go. It updates almost daily. Uh, otherwise, I have caseorganic.com, and that has more of my speaking and book. Um, and then I'm all over the web at Case Organic. I try to keep it consistent. Thank you very much. Thank you.